open your Bibles up to Daniel chapter number 8. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8 takes place in 551 B.C. King Belshazzar has been on the throne for three years. In only 12 years, Babylon will fall and King Belshazzar will die. For Daniel and the Jewish people in Babylon, the world seems to be in chaos. Here they have an incompetent leader in charge of their city and their country in King Belshazzar. He's a fool. He's godless. He sees God's people as an obstacle to getting his agenda done. And now are there, there are these people to the east of them, the Medes and the Persians, who are coming against them. And so now God's people in Babylon, the Jewish people, have questions. They're safe for now, but what will happen in the next few years? What if the Persian army made their way into their city? What could happen to them? How foolish will their king be in his reign? How will it affect God's people? These are all legitimate questions, aren't they? Frankly, these are questions that many people have in America. These are questions that we're asking even in 2021. For 20 years, we have poured trillions of dollars into Afghanistan, sacrificed American lives to build a country. And many of us, as I said earlier this past week, felt the gut-wrenching reality of what is taking place over there. We promised, as Americans, thousands of people who work side by side with us that we would protect them, but we didn't keep our promise. This past week, we left billions of dollars of military equipment in the hands of terrorists. According to FAI mission, the Taliban are going door to door, taking women and children. Homes must mark their house with an X if they have a girl over the age of 12 years old. So a Taliban fighter can come by and take them as their wives. If you refuse, the men of the house then are executed and the girls are taken anyways. According to Dr. Rex Rogers, president of the Middle Eastern Christian TV and religionnews.com, they report the Taliban are demanding people's phones. If they see a Bible app on your phone, they execute you on the spot. According to theblaze.com and many other different news outlets, the Taliban are going door to door right now and executing anyone who is a Christian or associated with Christians. There is... Right now in Afghanistan, and I think will be over the next few weeks, a holocaust for women, for many people, and particularly for Christians. Now, for some of you, this might be new to you. For some of you, this might be old news for you. Some of you might know even know more than I know at this moment right now. As I read this news on Tuesday, and probably like, like many of you watched a lot of this and throughout the week tried to keep up with it, I was overwhelmed with it. I was, I was sick. This week. And I thought to myself at one point, I thought, I need a reality check, right? I need a reality check. Can you imagine just imagining what's happening over there in that country and to people that my, some of my friends personally know and the work that God is doing over there? So, what's the reality check? I mean, first of all, what is reality, right? What is what is reality? Reality is what is true. Reality is what is really happening. Reality is what is really happening in our physical world. Reality is really what is happening in our spiritual world. Reality is really life without worldly deception, life without spiritual deception. It's reality is how really God views the world. In fact, reality is what is true, and God is true, so therefore God is reality, right? He is reality. He knows reality. He is the ultimate reality. And he is the truth. And so if we want to know the truth, 
about our lives, about our world, about God, we must go to his word and listen to his word. This morning, what I want you to do as we consider just the chaos of this world, even maybe of your own life, maybe there's something in your life that right now is causing you to feel the chaos of society or of sin or of difficulty, of suffering. I want you to ask yourself, what is the reality? Open your heart to the reality of God's word. So let's do this. Let's pray and ask God to do that in our hearts here this morning. Father, show us the truth this morning about you. Show us the truth about our world. Show us the truth about ourselves. And Lord, may we respond in faith to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever put on those virtual reality glasses and played maybe some type of game or maybe just explored a, a virtual world? You know what I'm talking about? You can put those virtual goggles on and it transports you to this other digital world and you can sometimes even interact in these worlds and sometimes be able to walk and talk and all that kind of stuff. Well, in Daniel chapter 8 here, Daniel receives a vision that actually is much like a virtual reality experience. We saw the vision of chapter 7 the last few weeks. That was a dream. He was asleep. And, and we said it was much like watching a movie of the history of the world and also of the second coming of Christ. But in Daniel 8, we see something different. In, in Daniel 8, Daniel is wide awake. He seems to be transported to this city called Susa, the future capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. And in 1551, Susa was just a regular old town in what's modern-day Iran. It was an insignificant town. There was no citadel. There was no palace. But here we see in Daniel 8, Daniel's transported into this city. He sees this citadel. He's actually transported, it seems like, in the future. And why is he transported to this city? This is going to be the future city where Queen Esther will rule. Remember her? In another 120 years from Daniel chapter 8, she will be a queen in Susa. Why would God transport him in a vision to this city? Well, God gave him a, a vision of the history of the Medo-Persian kingdom, and Susa was their capital. And soon, the Medo-Persian military would come in in 12 years and would... You know what? I'm realizing my PowerPoint's not up here. Huh? I don't know what happened to it, but there you go. Well, we're not going to have a PowerPoint this morning, I guess. Well, you're not going to see my, uh, my illustrations up there, but I had it at one time, believe me. And uh, anyways, back to what we're saying, that he was, he's going to be transported. He was transported to this city, and he saw the Medo-Persian capital, Susa, which was the capital of this kingdom. And soon, the Medo-Persians would actually conquer the Babylonian Empire. And then... Alexander the Great with the Greek military would come and they would conquer the Medo-Persian um, military and they'd actually be in that city of Susa there. That's where Alexander the Great would come and conquer them. So he's in a very significant city. This is where the rise of the Medo-Persians took place. This is where the fall of the Medo-Persians took place. This is where the rise of Alexander the Great and the Greeks took place. And the point of this chapter here, of Daniel chapter 8, the point of this chapter is to show the Jewish people the reality of the suffering of man, but also the providence of God. And so we're going to have a reality check this morning. I don't have this on the screen, so you're just going to have to listen carefully as I read this aloud. Here's reality check number one. You can write this down. Reality check number one. A world that rejects God suffers under controlling oppressors, immoral desires, and satanic powers. A world that rejects God suffers under controlling oppressors, immoral desires, and satanic powers. Would you look in verse number one? Verse number one, the Bible says, in the year, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision... And when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was in Ulai, I was at the Ulai Canal. 
While standing there, Daniel is going to now see 387 years of history from his point on until the time of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. So I want you to imagine Daniel here by this canal, standing in Susa, seeing this citadel, and then he sees this strange kind of virtual reality war between a ram and a goat. So there's this huge ram that's right there. Now rams are these large uh, horned sheep, right? They can be up to 250 to 300 pounds. They can be up to four to five. Some even, if they're super large, they can be up to even six feet. That's, I read that online, so I'm cer- certain it's probably true. Their horns can be 30 pounds. So then you have these big rams, right, that are out there, and there's just one out there, and he's going every which direction. He's defeating everyone. And then from the, the west comes this this goat, and he flies across the world. He has this big horn. He lands, then he runs at the ram, and he hits the ram, knocks him down, breaks both of his horns, and then stomps all over him. And so this is like another National Geographic experience here, right? That's what we're seeing. But it's in a vision. And this goat goat then grew bigger and bigger and stronger. He has some kind of growth spurt. And this big horn, therefore, falls off. And then four horns grow. And then one horn, one of those four horns, is really big. And it hurts a lot of people. And so that's the Cliff Notes version there of of verses 3 through 14. So you see the vision here in verses 3 through 14. And then you see after that the explanation of the vision. So let's just walk through this vision and let's learn what it means. Look in verse 3. The Bible says, I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. So verse 20 tells us this ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. It represents the Medo-Persian Empire. So each horn represents each part of that empire, the Persian one being greater. Verse 3, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. That's the Persian part. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, every which direction. No beast could stand before him. So they were conquering all these nations. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. And he did as he pleased and became great. So this is the history of the Persian Empire. Again, in 12 years from this time, the Persian Empire in 539 BC is going to come and defeat Babylon. There's going to be the handwriting on the wall, all that kind of stuff. And then look down in verse number 5. So now we're going to go more into the future. As I was considering, behold, a male goat. And now in verse 21, we're going to learn that this is representing the Greek Empire. The Greeks and the Persians, they had extreme hatred for each other. It was about 100 years where they just had all these battles and all these wars, and they were bloody, they were savage wars. So verse 5 says, As I was considering, behold, a male goat, the Greek Empire, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. So he's coming in hot here. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. The horn on that goat represents the Grecian conqueror, Alexander the Great. Remember Alexander the Great? If you know your history, he's 20 years old. He wants to conquer the world. And within 12 years, he actually is able to subjugate people from Greece all the way over to northwest India. So about 1.5 million acres or are, are 1.5 million square miles of territory he is able to conquer, which is amazing. And he vanquished his greatest foe, which was the Medo-Persian Empire. So look in verse 6. We see this now, Alexander the Great. He, Alexander the Great, came to, to the ram with two horns, that's the Medo-Persian Empire, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him, in his powerful wrath. In fact, it's in that place that Daniel's standing where that's going to take place and Alexander the Great is going to conquer the Medo-Persian Empire in Susa there. And then verse 7, I saw him close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns and the ram had no power. So the Medo-Persian army, they had no power to stand before him. And he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So the Medo-Persian military was done for. Then the goat became exceedingly great 
and, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And so the broken horn represents the fact that Alexander the Great died at the age of 32 years old. He actually died in the city of Babylon, where Daniel lived, right? And that happened in 323 BC. That's 228 years after this vision. And then keep going. And instead of it, instead of Alexander the Great, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So Alexander the Great died, and then about 40 years passed, and the kingdom was split into four parts, and four of his generals took each part. One of those generals, eventually, from the province of one of the provinces of Greece, his name was Antichicus the Fourth. So one of these generals had children, had children, and one of them ended up being a guy named Antichicus the Fourth. We're going to see him in verse nine. Out of one of them came a little horn. That's Antichicus the Fourth, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. The glorious land is the land of Israel. So what we're going to see is, now this is years later, in 175 B.C., we have this guy named Antichicus IV, who's actually ruling over the area, the glorious land or the land of Israel. And a large group of exiles by that time had already come back to Jerusalem. They built the walls of Jerusalem. They restored the temple. They restored the worship of Yahweh and the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood. So all that was restored, and now this Greek king was overseeing that part of the world. And so look at verse 10. It says, it, that's Antiochus IV, grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground. It's speaking of the Jewish people and trampled on them. Antiochus was a totalitarian dictator. He tried to force the Jewish people to worship their Greek gods. So what we see here with Antiochus is that he is a type of antichrist. He foreshadows the actual antichrist, but he has really the spirit of antichrist. Really what we see with people like Antiochus is this, are people who have the spirit of antichrist. That is, they're against Christ. They're against God's people. They're against God's word. They're against the worship of the Lord and they actually invite people to worship themselves. Antiochus tried to Hellenize the Jewish people, which basically means he tried to get them to adopt Greek culture, the Greek language. He wanted to put a gymnasium up in uh, Jerusalem, which is not like the gymnasiums we have. And he actually was able to do that. Basically what it was is there was people that were doing these races, kind of like the Olympics, but the Jews were opposed to this because people did it in, without clothes on. Also, they had theaters around Jerusalem, and the Jews were opposed to this because the theaters were sensual dramas of lust and idolatry. So think about putting on the average Netflix show on a stage like this, right, or HBO. So the Jewish people were opposed to that. When the Jews opposed Antiochus, he crushed them. He required them to worship Zeus. He declared himself to be a god. Actually, his full title, his full name was Antiochus IV. Um, um, god manifested. He declared himself to be a god. Epiphanes, there I was, looking for the word. I couldn't find it. Epiphanes, there you go. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And Epiphanes means god manifest. So he actually set himself up in the, the temple there, and he declared himself to be god manifest. He raided the temple. He stole its treasures. He actually took swine pigs, and he sacrificed them on the altar there. He took the entrails, and he spread them throughout the Holy of Holies. So he desecrated the temple. He went house to house, and he began killing Jews. 80,000 Jews were slaughtered. 40,000 were sold into slavery. He commanded everyone to sacrifice to Zeus, and if you didn't do so, then you would be killed. He took the copies of the scriptures and he burned them and commanded that anyone found with a copy of the scriptures would be executed. He, he made it illegal to practice Jewish law and Sabbath. For instance, while some mothers, or some mothers uh, circumcised their boys in faithfulness to the Jewish law, he killed their babies, hung their babies around their neck, marched them through Jerusalem, and then had them walk over a cliff. 
this is the spirit of Antichrist. Sounds like some of the stories we're hearing over in the Middle East, doesn't it? Notice verse 11. Verse 11 predicts this. It, that's Antichrist, Antichrist, became great, even as great as the prince of the host. The prince of the host is the Messiah. And so he made himself great like the Messiah would be. So here he is, this Antichrist type. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his, that's the Messiah's, sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. The transgression is what I was talking about where he actually sacrificed swine in the temple there. It will throw truth to the ground. So he burned the copies of the scripture. He outlawed the following in the worship of Yahweh. It will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over the sanctuary, that's the temple, and host to be trampled underfoot? In other words, how long will the Jewish people suffer under this? How long will the, the temple be desecrated? How long till it's restored? And so he gives the answer in verse 14. This holy one, some angel said to him, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. In other words, this suffering will last for six years and, and 110 days. Six years and 110 days. And so in 171 BC, the high priest Menelaus robbed the temple. And for the next six years, the temple continued to be defiled by Antiochus. But in 165 BC, the temple was restored and was rededicated to Yahweh. And that date, 165, is the day when the celebration of Hanukkah is what we uh, people celebrate Hanukkah. That's what they're celebrating is that day when the temple was restored. So look down in verse 15. Daniel is confused, doesn't know what it means, and some of you are thinking the same thing. So look at verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, that's an angel of God, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. And he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Some of you are kind of there right now, aren't you? Okay, but let's touch you and wake you up. So if you're next to someone, you can be like Gabriel and touch them, wake them up. But he touched me and made me stand up. Okay, just stay seated though, don't stand up. Verse 19, he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Meda in Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, that's Alexander the Great, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king, and that's Alexander the Great. Verse 22, as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his, from his nation, but not with his power. In other words, he's going to die. Verse 23, and at the latter end of their kingdom, so this is close to the end of the Greek kingdom before Rome takes over and rules that area. When the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. So who is this? This is Antiochus IV. So he's going to be powerful. He's actually going to be intelligent. Verse 24, his power shall be great, but look at this, but not by his own power. In other words, he's going to have some kind of influence. And what's that going to be? That's satanic influence right there. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. The saints here are the Jewish people. So this is a prophecy of their suffering. Verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. 
And in his own mind, he shall become great. He'll be prideful. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, that's the Messiah, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. And so Gabriel said that Antiochus IV would cause great suffering, but eventually he would die, and he died in 164 B.C. Look at verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. In other words, the, the, the temple will be restored, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And then look at verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Now, why did he feel that way? He sees this vision, and he's, he's overwhelmed. He's sick in his bed. Well, he's just seen probably one of the worst horror movies you could. He had a glimpse of 387 years of oppressive, lush-driven, satanic-empowered, God-rebelling history. Think of all that he saw. It was brutal. And here's a reality check. A world that rejects God suffers under controlling oppressors, immoral desires, and satanic powers. As we look at places like Afghanistan, honestly, there's many other countries that are like them as well. We're disgusted and we're shocked by that. But that is actually the reality of our world, isn't it? That's the, that's the extreme end of it, but that's the reality of our world. Our world suffers under those who want to control, under those who are controlling oppressors. We have controlling oppressive regimes who want to dictate who want to be totalitarian um, dictators over people's lives. So our world suffers under those who want to control, but our world also suffers under the enslavement of immoral desires. Notice the immoral desires you see throughout this text. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 speaks of Alexander the Great. He, that's Alexander the Great, in the middle of verse 6, he ran at him in his powerful wrath. The Greek military was motivated by rage, really revenge for all that they had done to the Greek cities. Look at verse 7. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him. Look down in verse 25. Antiochus IV was motivated by the lust of pride. Verse 25, in the middle of the verse, he says, in his own mind, he shall become great. Why do dictators oppress? Why do totalitarian governments want to have control? Why do sinners sin? Well, the answer is found here in the scriptures, and it's because the hearts of people are controlled by immoral, sinful desires. James 4.1 says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Why are there wars? Why are there fights? What's the answer? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It comes from this sinful desire that rests within us. Why do we have wars? Because people are enslaved to their sinful desires. Why do people fight? Why are marriages at war? Because people have sinful desires. Our world suffers under the enslavement of immoral desires. We look at what hap was happening over there in Afghanistan, and honestly, we're disgusted, and we should be. But the reality is those same type of sinful desires to dominate, to control, to hurt people, to get revenge, are also found here in America too, aren't they? The sinful desire to fulfill my lust, to destroy my enemies, to hold on to that grudge, is in the hearts of people in Simi Valley. It's in the hearts of every person. It might look different, right? It might be sanitized or it might be hidden, but frankly, it's within each person's heart. We like to have dinner as a family each night. One night we were having dinner and we were talking about what is happening over in Afghanistan and one of my children asked the question, why do people like the Taliban want to dominate like that and hurt people like that? So what, what's the answer to that? Why do they want to do something like that? 
And so I said, well, it's because it's within each one of our hearts, right? It's within each one of our hearts. I said, let, let me give you a, an example. Let's say I were to say that I'm going to pick one person at the table. So I want you to imagine all our food there. We're almost done. We've got to clean up afterwards. So I'm going to pick one person at the table. This person is going to be in charge the rest of the day. Everyone has to do what this person says. When it's time to clean up, they're in charge. They tell us what to do. No matter what they say, we have to do it. Now, how many people want to be that person? How many people do you think raised their hand that they wanted to be that person? Everybody, right? Everybody wants to be the one in charge. Everybody wants to be the one on top. It's the natural desires of our flesh. We want to be served. But then I ask, okay, how many of you want to be the servant? How many of you want to be the ones that the rest of the day you have to do whatever the other person says? How many of you think volunteered for that one? No one. Well, of course, then some of the spiritual kids said, oh, I'll do that, you know. I think they knew where I was going with it, though. All of us have these inner desires to control, to dominate, to be in charge, to have people serve us. Like, we don't naturally delight in serving people. I went to John chapter 13 and and read the story of Christ there, where he, he says, I recognize that I'm God. Yeah, he got on his knees took a towel, took a basin of water, and he acted like a servant and washed their feet. And he says in John 13, 15, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done. That means that we should serve like he did. If you know these things, he said, blessed are you if you do them. Wars and fights come from the hearts of those who desire self-exaltation. Let me ask you this. Children, when you fight with your siblings, do you have a lot of joy? Husbands and wives, when you have arguments with each other, people in the church, when you're upset at each other, is there a lot of joy there? Not at all. But listen to this. Jesus says, blessed are you if you serve people. True blessing and joy is found in those who have the heart of Christ and who humble themselves like Christ and serve. And I told my kid, I said, sometimes, sometimes we're not that much different than the Taliban. When we act selfishly, when we belittle people with jokes and with gossip and with anger, we're acting like them. Maybe not to the same extent, not the same degree, but we are acting in a way that's controlled by our sinful desires. And notice also, our world suffers under the power of Satan. Look at verse 24. Where did Antiochus IV get his power? Verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. It was from Satan. In fact, look in verse 25. You can see how he uses the craft of Satan. Verse 25. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In other words, he leads by lies, by deceit. In his own mind, he shall be great. He has pride, doesn't want to admit he's wrong. He's always right, right? Without warning, he shall destroy many. This is how Satan works. He seeks to destroy people. These are the works of Satan. Satan works with deception. He schemes through exaltation and pride. His end goal is to destroy When we look at our world, and frankly, when we even look around us, when you see people who are seeking to destroy people, and they do it through lies and through deception, you can know this. Listen, you can know this, church. They are being influenced by Satan. And this is not just a reality over in Afghanistan. This is a reality in Simi Valley. This can happen in a church like ours. That's one of the reasons God has given this church a blessing of elders. Elders are there to protect the sheep. One of the things that elders are protected cheap, or one of the ways the elders are to protect the sheep is from those who are going to come in to seek to destroy people through lies and deception. And so notice in verse 25, he also doesn't seek to destroy, but he also, Scripture says, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He also is coming against God himself. The prince of princes is probably a reference to the Messiah God who is in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So here's the reality. Every person who rebels against God is a person who lives 
with the, under the enslavement of their immoral desires under the power of Satan. Each person follows these desires. In fact, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? Go to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you this in Ephesians 2. Every person in this world follows the lusts of their hearts and are unknowingly influenced by the power of Satan unless they are rescued by the grace of Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 2. Paul writes to the church in which you once walked. So this is how you once were before you were saved. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince. Now this is talking about Satan. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit, really the, the antichrist spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But then, here's the glorious truth. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The answer to those who are dead in their sins, the answer to those who are, who are enslaved to their passions and under the power of Satan is to be resurrected by the power of Jesus Christ. That's found through grace, the grace of Christ. Christ's Grace can resurrect your soul. Christ's grace can free the enslaved heart. And really the hope for me, the hope I cling on to, the hope for you, the hope for our city, the hope for Afghans, even the hope for those who are Taliban fighters, is found in the grace of God. That grace is received by faith. So what's the reality? The reality is, that we live in a world that rejects God. We suffer under those who are controlling oppressors. Immoral, we have immoral desires and there are satanic powers. And reality number two, you can write this down. Reality number two, God's gracious and just providence is unseen, but it's certain. Reality number two, God's gracious and just providence is unseen, but it's certain. Did you notice God's providence throughout this text of scripture, it might be difficult to see. You know, you see a lot of suffering in chapter 8, but where is God's providence at? Well, first of all, God is the one giving the vision, right? That means he knows the future. He knows the past. He knows the present. God knows it all. God oversees it all. Frankly, God governs it all. You can see that in the text also in that God has appointed times. He has appointed seasons. Look down in verse number 19. Verse 19, Gabriel said to Daniel, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be, this is the future, at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. So the, the future is not just a possibility with God. The future is a certainty with God. He knows it. He's actually appointed times. He's appointed the end. Look down at verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit. So notice God has even a, a limit to the sins of people. He has this time where he allows people to sin. We see this with the Canaanites, right? He has a time where transgressions are allowed, and then the time is done, and God brings judgment. God has these periods of time in history, and also, I think, frankly, in people's lives, where he allows them to transgress, and then they face judgment. Sometimes it takes place in this world. There's physical punishment, physical consequences to sin, physical judgment. But no matter what, there definitely will be an eternal judgment for those without Christ. Sometimes it's not immediately evident, right? We can see someone's life and think, well, they're, 
living a wicked life, but they seem to be prospering. Like, why isn't God judging them? Or we see things on TV like, how can that happen? Like, how can people take over a country like that and act like that? Where is God at? We can ask those questions, but we have to trust that God has his time. I heard a story of two brothers who were acting very naughty, very bad, and their mom couldn't control them. Two boys in the home that, that were out of control. And so the mom sat them down and tried to tell them, you know, God's going to punish you for your sin. And they looked around and thought, well, nothing's happening, so what's the big deal? So then she thought she'd up the, up the ante and bring the pastor in. So she brought the preacher to her home. He went in the kitchen, sat down, and one of the boys came in there. The other boy was in the bedroom. And so one of the boys came in the kitchen, and the preacher sat down there, and there was the young boy standing in front of him. And, and so the preacher wanted this boy to recognize that God is everywhere. God's watching him. And so the preacher said to this boy, he said in a booming voice, he was one of those preachers that has, you know, the booming voice. And he said, son, where is God? And so the boy's eyes just... You know, or he was shocked. He just looked at him and stared at him and, what's happening here? And the preacher said, son, answer me. Where is God? And this boy just stood there in shock and couldn't move. And he was petrified. And the preacher was a little frustrated. The boy wasn't answering him. He said, son, tell me now. Where is God? And the boy, just in fear, ran out of the kitchen, ran to the bedroom, went under the bed, and his other brother said, what's going on? What happened? What's wrong? And the boy said, the preacher is really mad at us. We're, we're in real big trouble. The preacher thinks we did something to make God disappear. <laughs> and I, I think that we can sometimes be like those boys. And people in our world can. It's like, where is God? You know? And you think that life can happen without consequence. But God is here. He sees, he knows, and his hand is at work. Look at verse 25. We can see the justice of God upon Antiochus IV's life. He faced judgment in this life and then definitely in the life to come. Verse 25 says, And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. He died, but nobody killed him. Do you know how he died? Well, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but there was a Maccabean revolt led by Judas Maccabees. His father refused to sacrifice a pig to Zeus, and so this family led a revolt. They ended up defeating the armies of Antiochus, which was pretty amazing, and they were able to uh, restore the temple in 165 B.C. And so look down in verse 14. This is the, the promise of that right there. This is when this is going to happen. He says, look, in, in six years, in six years and 110 days, he says in the middle of the verse, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And again, like I said earlier, this is the celebration that the, that the Jewish people um, have to celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a celebration of this day, I should say. In fact, if you look in John chapter 10, you can see Jesus goes into the temple and he celebrates the Feast of Dedication, and that's that celebration right there. The reality check, though, is this, that God's gracious and just providence is unseen, but it is certain. We, listen, church, we can be assured that God is at work. We might not understand everything God is doing or all the reasons why God is doing what he's doing, but we can know he is providentially working with his unseen hands. The outcome God desires, the outcome God intends is certain. One of the reasons I think God gave us this vision is to help us see this, but also to recognize that there's going to be one that's going to come in the future. He will be an antichrist type, or I'm sorry, he will be the antichrist, and Antiochus IV actually is an Antichrist type. In fact, would you do this with me? Go to Matthew chapter 24. I had these on the screen, but my computer died on me, so you're just going to have to flip there yourself, I guess. Matthew chapter 24, look at verse 15. We're going to see that Jesus refers back to Daniel 
But also he looks forward and says, actually, there's going to be one that's going to come who's going to desolate the temple again. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation, so that's what was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And honestly, that's a good point because that's difficult to understand. But what he's saying is, yes, there was that time in Daniel when that happened, and that was predicted, but also it's, this is actually going to happen in the future. And you can read through that text, and you can read about that. Jesus taught, though, that there's going to be a future abomination of the temple. We'll go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This teaches us about the future Antichrist. Notice the similarities between this Antichrist, the Antichrist, I should say, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Antichicus the fourth. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.3 says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, so there you go, he's trying to destroy, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so he expels all the religions except this, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And go back to Daniel chapter 8, we'll finish there. But the point is, is that here God has revealed that there's going to be this one also that's going to come, and he's going to be the Antichrist. So Antichrist the fourth represents a future one who will be a totalitarian dictator, and he will rule the world right before Christ comes back. God's providence is gracious. It's also just. And it might now, in some sense, be unseen, but it is certain. This past week, as I was studying this text, and then I'm also like reading the news. It's probably not the best way to study your Bible, but that's what I was doing. I was just sick to see what was happening. And so these two realities stuck out to me. Here's, there's a world that's suffering under the curse of sin. And what's the answer for that? It's the gospel, right? And we could send a military back over there and try to fix it again. But the actual answer for the hearts of people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God's graciously at working by providence. So that means that he's building his church. And I don't really understand everything that's happening over there, but I do believe this. I do believe Christ will build his church. And that can happen in a place like America that is, that is entranced by media and by pleasure. And it can happen in a place like Afghanistan that's, that's led by terrorists. But then the last reality hit me. That is this reality, that we must trust God's word and keep working. Look at verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for many days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, and I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Now, let's be honest, I get that last line. I spent a lot of hours this week trying to understand this vision. <laughs> and also, I get the first part, too. I can understand when you're overcome by suffering that you just want to go to bed, right? And you just feel sick by what's happening. But I think what's amazing is when you see what you see here with Daniel is that second sentence, then I rose and went about the king's business. And I think the application to this text is right there. Do what God has called you to do. Maybe, maybe we should watch a little less news. That might be helpful, right? But definitely let's get, our, let's get the Bible out. Let's see reality from God's perspective. Let's pray and trust the Lord. And then let's do what God has called us to do that day. Let's get up. Let's do the king of kings business. One of the things that I think the book of, da or, um, the book of Daniel, but particularly chapter 8, reveals to us is the 
accuracy of God's word. Is this amazing to think about? I mean, honestly, when you read something like this, it should, it should cause you to have more confidence in God's word. I mean, here we have the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, precious word of God. I mean, I don't know, as I read through this, if you went, that's a boring history lesson, or you went, whoa, that's amazing that God actually in detail put all that in there. How could you not believe the Bible, right? I mean, this is amazing to see the accuracy of prophecy. But God's word is more than just an accurate book. It's a precious one. How precious, how precious is God's word to you? I mean, do we look at this? Do we read it? Do we believe it? Do you take the word of God seriously? I was listening to a sermon by Paul Washer this past week. He said something that stuck with me. He said, you know, we think about Christians who are in other countries and under threat of dying and the fact that they might have someone come by and say, are you a Christian? And then they would therefore have to say yes. Would they stay faithful to that? Will I, would I stay faithful to that? We think about someone like that dying for the sake of Christ. And he said, you know, when you think about something like that, like that's easy. Not, not easy to, to die like that, but easy to think that way. It's easy to think, you know what? If I was in that position and they came to my door and they said, look at my phone, I would show it to them. I would die. It's, it's easy to think that way. But he said this. He said, well, you know what's not easy? It's continuing. He said, what's not easy, he didn't say this, this is what I'm going to say. He said, what's not easy is getting up and doing the king's business. What's not easy is getting your Bible out and reading it each day. What's not easy is praying for strength. What's not easy is, is trusting in God's grace. What's not easy is sacrificing your rights and your desires for the good of others. What's not easy is prioritizing Sundays, right? What's not easy is getting up and coming to church on time (laughs) because it's important, right? Like we don't miss things that are important in our life. You know, if we we play soccer, we have a game, we don't come late to that, do we? Why? Because it's important. You know, if we have work and we have to be there at 8 o'clock, we don't come late to that. The, The point is, is this, is that that's, That's not easy to prioritize the worship of God. It's not easy to serve the church. It's not easy to continue on. The best thing we can do when we face overwhelming circumstances, I think, is to get God's word out, to read God's word, to trust God's word, and then do what God's called us to do that day. You're a mom. Maybe you should turn the news off <laughs> if, it's, if it's overwhelming you. Read God's word. Keep being a mom. If you're an employee, read God's word. Trust God's word. Ask for strength and grace. Be the best employee you can be. If you're a church member, read God's word. Trust God's word. Serve the church. And maybe you cry. Maybe you go to bed for a couple minutes. <laughs> like, get up. And rise and go about the king's business. Let's pray.